Well, I feel like I could take on the whole empire myself, and so can you with Rebel Assault, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 52 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and we are back once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP era. It's one of my favorites this week. I'm uh, really excited to talk about it, and uh, I'm really excited to uh, be indoors right now because it's kind of gross and dreary and raining and hot and muggy outside. Uh, I know all of you from hotter places than uh, Canada, than, <laughs> than Toronto are... Uh, are probably laughing at me, but uh, I just went for a run and it's, uh, I'm kind of sticky. It's <laughs> just a little bit. So, uh, glad to be sitting here and doing the podcast. So, uh, yeah, let's get on with it. Just a little bit of news this week. Uh, first of all, some big developments in the world of Chris Roberts, star citizen, uh, arena commander, which is the working name for the long-awaited dogfighting module has gone live for backers, myself included. Uh, I gave it a quick spin, and while this is considered by the development team to be pre-alpha, it's enjoyable, if somewhat rudimentary and a little rough around the edges uh, right now. The graphics are are quite good, but the flight controls still need a little bit of polish, in my opinion. Uh, I've been told Elite Dangerous is much farther along in development and uh, has a much more solid feel, a much more solid flight model. Uh, but uh, I didn't back that game, unfortunately. And uh, the $150 buy-in for beta access right now uh, means likely uh, I won't try it until it comes out unless someone wants to spot me 150 bucks. <laughs> but uh, anyways, if you are a Star Citizen backer, and uh, you want to tool around in one of your reward ships, then uh, you should go grab it. I believe you can get it from StarCitizen.com. You just got to log in to your uh, Citizen ID or whatever it's called, and uh, you could download the client, and then it downloads many, many, many patches, and then eventually you uh, might be able to get in and play Arena Commander. Next, uh, last week was E3 week, of course, the Electronic Entertainment Expo. Uh, We heard a lot about upcoming games on next-gen platforms and all that noise and how awesome Sony, Nintendo, or not Nintendo, they weren't there, but they made announcements anyways, and uh, and Microsoft are. But one very cool and relevant announcement came out of the Sony press conference. It appears that LucasArts, Sony, and Double Fine are working together to remaster one of the greatest LucasArts adventure games of all time, at least in my memory, Grim Fandango. Uh, it'll be coming out for the PS4 and the Vita in the near future and in addition i'm sure in the near future i will uh talk about that game in great detail because i love it so that's that for the news real quick this time around there's probably more to talk about but uh nothing that i remembered or nothing that i uh i came across you're listening to the upper memory block podcast okay before we get to our main topic we got a couple of emails first a message from carlos and he writes hey joe 
After blindly searching and combing through several video game podcasts over the last couple of years, I finally came across UMB and feel like I hit the niche jackpot. So thank you. Not only do I get to hear someone else's take on amazing games tied closely to my childhood, but it is done so passionately and in a format that is both entertaining and informative. I get really excited about the development stories. I was very young when I put down my SNES controller to begin my computer gaming obsession on an IBM Aptiva. Admittedly, a little late for DOS gaming, but countless CD-ROMs I came across afforded me the opportunity to play catch-up through many demos and shareware episodes. As much as I love today's games, I still prefer to backtrack through the years to find new gems or replay all of my old favorites, and you've turned me onto some great ones that I've missed, namely Little Big Adventure, the original Fallout, huge fan of the newer ones, uh, the Quest games, and Out of This World, which I played briefly on SNES as a kid, but found it impossible to get past the first screen. Also, if you have any interest in having me entertain you for a change, I released a fictitious video game soundtrack that you might like. It began as a soundtrack for a small video game, which was canceled. So uh, I continued on to produce a standalone title or album titled Mount Analog. I have, ba- I have a background in scoring film and commercials, so I took a cinematic approach while maintaining an 8-bit only sound palette. Uh, it's more of a throwback to my NES days than anything else, but I'm sure you'll find it interesting even if it does lack that sweet, meaty sound. You can listen here, and that's at uh, carlocarossi.bandcamp.com. That's C-A-R-L-O-C-A-R-O-S-I.bandcamp.com. You can check it out. Uh, I gave it a listen. It's it's really, really cool. It's uh, it's great music that... uh, that I've actually taken to listening to while, uh, while I'm at work, while I'm typing code and that kind of stuff. I'll link it in the show notes. Really, really good. So uh, feel free to check it out. Thank you so much, Carlos. Next up, we got an email from Elima. She writes, hello, Joe and fellow blockers. No email on Rebel Assault from me since I've never played it, but I did want to write in about your last podcast on the Tesla effect. I have a confession to make. I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to covering new newer games in the UMB. Oddly enough, I tend to be of the opinion that there are lots and lots of old Dawson pre-Windows XP games I'd like to see you cover. But your show on Tesla Effect was great. I loved it. And I have to agree with you, that soundtrack sounds amazing. I had goosebumps listening to that clip from the intro you played. So thanks a bunch. Looking forward to your Rebel Assault podcast, Emily slash Ilima. Well, thanks so much, Ilima. And... And yeah, you know, I mean, it's always up in the air, you know, changing the format up every once in a while. But, um, you know, I find it interesting and I usually get good feedback on those kind of, uh, I guess I've done a couple now. I guess I did what, SimCity 5, uh, XCOM, and this one. And uh, and yeah, Tesla Effect. So I guess those are the three that I've I've done so far. And frankly, uh, it gives me a chance to play uh, play these games because, you know, I, I do get a chance. I don't just play old old DOS games. I, I do have a Steam account and I do play new stuff. I think I mentioned a couple of shows back. I'm overly obsessed with uh, Diablo 3 Reaper of Souls and, uh, you know, stuff like SimCity, stuff like XCOM. Uh, God, what else? Civilization. I'm a big fan of Civ Five. I've tried to get into, uh, not Crusader Kings, uh, but that other one. Anyways, one of the super big uh, strategy type grand strategy games, and I'm not very good at them, but uh, I like that. I love Sims, all, all those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, every once in a while, I like throwing a newer game in there just to mix things up, mix things up for me as well, because, you know, it's interesting to talk about newer technology in addition to older technology and all that. So uh, there will be more of those again every once in a while when something kind of uh, relatively iconic kind of comes out. So, uh, yeah. That's that. And let's get on with things. Thanks, you guys, for those emails. 
You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, time for the main event. This week, I'll be covering a series that I played quite a bit of in my youth, Rebel Assault. The Rebel Assault series consists of two games, both developed and published by LucasArts. The first game, entitled, of course, Rebel Assault, released back in the year 1993. So, we've finally gotten around to a genre we've never seen before. Rebel Assault is known as a rail shooter, which is a specific subgenre of the more general genre of shoot 'em up, or simply shmup for short. Uh, a shoot 'em up, or a shmup, I like saying shmup. <laughs> shmup. Anyways, a shmup. Now I'm going to laugh every time I say it. A shoot 'em up places the player in control of a single vehicle, uh, usually a spacecraft or an aircraft which is tasked with the sole assault and destruction of many, many, many enemies. Uh, These enemies can come in any form, but generally employ some form of fixed tactics or attack patterns, uh, which can be used by the player to defeat them. Enemies are generally much weaker than the player, but pose a threat due to their great numbers. Uh, Shoot-em-ups tend to be level-based, with more powerful boss enemies either at the end of each level or uh, some other arbitrary grouping of levels. So not only is uh, is this game a shoot 'em up, but as I said, it's more specifically a rail shooter. So a rail shooter maintains all the aspects of a shmup <laughs> uh, that I just talked about with uh, with a couple of limitations. First, rail shooters are generally played from either the first person perspective or a third person perspective with the player behind their avatar. Now the biggest limitation of rail shooters is that you don't, as a player, retain very much control over the path you take through a level. Uh, It's as if you are, conveniently enough, on rails. Uh, As the player, you control a crosshair, which aims your weapons, and uh, you generally do have some degree of movement control as it relates to either fine positioning or uh, dodging of enemy attacks. However, you can't generally stop, reverse, or in any way adjust your speed or pathing through a given level. So, enough of that. Let's move on to some details. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, story time, as we tend to do. So the story of Rebel Assault is interesting in a couple of ways. The intro provides a little bit of uh, an overview for us. is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships, striking from a hidden base, have won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire, who, under the command of Darth Vader, rule the galaxy with an iron fist. The Empire, however, is far from defeated. And many young, unknown pilots have joined the Rebels, in the hope they can restore freedom to the galaxy. So as you heard right at the end there in the fade out, we are following the adventures of a young rebel pilot named Rookie One. 
Now, Rookie One is a somewhat androgynous looking character who can be either male or female, uh, depending on the voice you select in the game options. Uh, I chose the male voice because, for some incomprehensible reason, I can't ever play a female character in a game if I have the choice to play a male one. I've tried it in MMOs, I've tried it in other games, and I just tend to give up on those characters. I mean, I'll play Tomb Raider or the kind of female-led uh, King's Quest games, no problem, but if I have uh, have the choice, I'm, I'm gonna play a dude, which uh, maybe it has something to do with identifying or, or, or something like that, but uh, eh, what are you gonna do? So my predilections aside, Uh, The story of Rebel Assault brings Rookie One through a loose interpretation of the events of Star Wars Episode Four, A New Hope. That's the first movie, the first chronological movie. Uh, Some elements are introduced here that do appear to be in contravention of established Star Wars canon, but uh, we can go through some of those as we discuss gameplay and the missions themselves. So as we begin the game, we find ourselves on Tatooine about to undergo flight training. And I guess this is as good a place as any to talk gameplay. So as I said, we find ourselves on Tatooine and we hear a little something like this. It is morning at a rebel base on planet Tatooine, where a young pilot is embarking on a crucial training flight. TACCOM Control, request clearance for departure. This is TACCOM Control, clearance granted. Is that you, kid? Hack, good to hear you. So you're running your trials today. I wish I could be with you. You shouldn't have any problems. Beggar's Canyon isn't half as tough as the runs we used to do. Good luck. Thanks. So you got all that, and here we see the first of many kind of Star Wars canon-type discrepancies. We find ourselves at Anchorhead Base on Tatooine. Now, this is a full-fledged rebel base relatively close to Anchorhead, which is one of the larger towns on the desert planet. Now, as kind of a big Star Wars nerd and a Star Wars EU nerd and all that, uh, I don't recall, frankly, any mention of, of this secret rebel base in basically Luke Skywalker's backyard before now. And uh, I don't think that there are any mentions of it after except for uh, a reference to it in Star Wars Galaxies, I believe, though I didn't play Star Wars Galaxies, so uh, I couldn't tell you that for sure. Any Galaxies players, feel free to let me know. Uh, So lore aside, because it's frankly not that important to the game, and it's just uh, there to fuel my nerdiness, uh, we are placed in command or in control of a T-16 Skyhopper. Now, this is a light, fast, and maneuverable atmospheric craft. Uh, We never actually see it outright in Episode 4, but if you keep your eyes open, it's actually the model that Luke is playing with when he's sitting in his garage with the droids. He's kind of pretending to fly it around, going, and whatever. Uh, You can also see the wing of his full-size Skyhopper in the background in the garage in that same scene. 
So the Incom T-16 Skyhopper is used by the Rebellion as a pilot trainer since it's made by the same company that makes the X-Wing and its control layout is very similar to that of the T-65 X-Wing. So generally, each level of the game is split into, I guess you could call them either a series of stages or a series of scenes that have checkpoints in between. Uh, So for this first mission, we have two stages. As you heard, we start off with straightforward flight training. Uh, The camera is placed in a third-person perspective directly behind your Skyhopper. So your goal is to follow your flight leader through Beggar's Canyon. Uh, Your only challenge at this point is to not hit the walls. Again, since this is a rails shooter, uh, you don't really have much choice except to follow your flight leader, uh, and that happens automatically. You only have control over the positioning of your Skyhopper kind of on the screen too far over to one side and you hit the walls and you take a little bit of damage. Uh, The amount of damage that you take depends on your difficulty level. Uh, Choosing between easy, normal, and hard has a direct correlation on this damage value. The harder the level, the more damage you sustain with each hit. Uh, As you'll see, the more I discuss the gameplay, it's actually all quite standard. Gameplay wasn't really the place where Rebel Assault innovated very much. Despite the fact that I've repeatedly said that you can't control the path of your ship through the levels, you are actually given an opportunity here to do so. Now, this is very relevant, as we'll see later on in the tech focus and the dev story. Uh, but for now, it's as simple as at one point in this level, you get to a fork in Beggar's Canyon and your flight leader allows you to go right if you want to take an easier path or go left for a more challenging path, choosing the harder path nets you a point bonus at the end of the level. And yes, since we're definitely in an arcade style game here, we have the concept of points, we have the concept of lives, and we have the concept of gaining extra lives and uh, losing lives until a game over. So you gain enough points and boom, you got an extra life. And trust me, in this game, you're probably going to need them. So flying through Beggar's Canyon, you quickly learn one thing. The flight controls in this game are damn twitchy. Uh, In these third-person view levels, it's very, very easy to overcompensate, and instead of, say, avoiding the inside wall of a canyon, you end up hitting the outside wall instead. Uh, I imagine the control scheme was somewhat deliberately designed this way, but at times it can absolutely be very frustrating. So once you get through the canyon, you come on out to flatter terrain for the second stage of this mission, where we do a little bit of target practice. Congratulations, Rookie One. Now let's try a little target practice. Prepare to engage target drones. Shoot any we pass over, but stay with us. So our view now switches to third-person top-down. Uh, we now have to maneuver through an area filled with narrow stone spires or butts, or I don't know what you call them. But uh, anyways, you have to avoid those while trying to damage and destroy as many automated target drones as you possibly can. Uh, in this view, you can control the position of your ship basically anywhere on the screen, forward, back, left, right. Uh, your target crosshairs are fixed in relation to your ship's position, and the terrain scrolls by at a constant rate. Uh, hitting more targets equals more points. Very, very uh, logical. Once this phase is complete, the level is done, and we move on to more advanced training. Well done, Rookie One. It looks like you've earned yourself an A-Wing. But don't try any stunts with Commander Farrell. He won't appreciate it. So as you heard there, we then graduate 
to your first true starfighter, the A-Wing. In the next level, we're taken into an asteroid field where you get a taste of one of the most frustrating aspects of the game, dodging asteroids. Again, your path through the field is fixed. Uh, You retain control of your A-Wing's fine positioning, which allows you to avoid asteroids that come near you by turning left and right. Uh, You also retain control of your lasers, which you can use to blast ice asteroids. These are detectable because they have crosshair, or uh, sorry, targeting boxes around them, and they are blue. Uh, The regular stone asteroids are non-destructible, so you just got to avoid those. So, well, Rookie 1 is getting his or her feet wet. Uh, The movie is happening. Episode 4, A New Hope, is is going on. So all the while that we're tooling through Beggar's Canyon and blowing up target drones and playing in the asteroid field, uh, in space above Tatooine, the Imperial Star Destroyer Devastator is chasing down the Royal Alderanian Counselor ship Tantive with Princess Leia and the Death Star plans aboard. So how does this affect us? Well, now we get to participate in an interception of the Devastator in an X-Wing, in what must be an incredibly epic bit of flying. We single-handedly destroy all the turbo lasers on the Star Destroyer, fend off waves of ties, and take out the deflector shield generators. To top it off, we fire a single proton torpedo at the bridge superstructure, disabling the Star Destroyer Devastator. We must be truly incredible pilots because, as far as I can tell, one X-Wing taking on a Star Destroyer is is probably a recipe for super suicide, at least... Uh, <laughs> that's what I've been told, or that's what uh, X-Wing and TIE Fighter and stuff showed me, though you were able to do it in that game if you were pretty good. But uh, anyways, uh, that's basically the first four levels of the game. So there's 15 levels in total, spanning many of the memorable battles of Episode 4. However, in the middle of the game, we take a sidetrack to Hoth and defend Gamma Base, which is not uh, not not the same base as in Empire Strikes Back. That was Echo Base. So we defend Gamma Base uh, against Imperial probe droids and AT-AT walkers. Uh, the probe droids put us in uh, in a snowspeeder and uh, we're basically required to chase the droids through ice tunnels. So again, there's balls to hit and enemies to shoot, kind of like in Beggar's Canyon. Uh, for the walkers... You'd expect, based on the movie, to know what would happen. However, unlike the events of the original Battle of Hoth in Empire Strikes Back, there are no harpoons and tow cables here. In Rebel Assault, we simply have to shoot the walker with our blasters and take out all of its armor. So the walker starts off kind of in a lighter tone, and as you destroy the armor, uh, it all kind of turns a darker shade of gray. Once your readout on uh, the walker's armor or health reads 0%, you win the level. The next Hoth level sort of reproduces Luke's crash from the end of the Battle of Hoth and Empire. Uh, It also changes up the gameplay a little bit. So far, we've had three different views of the action. Uh, The third-person chase, with the camera directly behind our ship, third-person top-down, and first-person cockpit view. All these views have involved us piloting a ship kind of in some way or another. Well, level nine has our snowspeeder malfunctioning and crashing again, oddly, like Luke Skywalker. Uh, We need to get back to Gamma Base and to our X-Wing to escape the ice planet. So Rookie 1 gets into the base without an issue, because they show you that in a cutscene. But now, we have to fight our way through the Rebel Base, which is now obviously overrun with... uh, I think they're just stormtroopers, but kind of stormtroopers or snowtroopers. They looked a little bit odd, but anyways. Uh, So we do this 
from a third person over the shoulder view of rookie one who is uh, holding a blaster. We're in a fixed position. So basically rookie one will kind of enter a scene, stop in a spot and uh, stand there. So we can't move, but we do retain the ability to dodge left and right to avoid enemy fire. Uh, Aside from that, all we can really do is be quick on the trigger. In each scene of the level, stormtroopers pop out from fixed positions. You kill enough of them and you eventually get through each scene and escape Hoth in your X-Wing. On the way out, you escort rebel transports, as was done in the escape from Hoth in Empire Strikes Back. Finally, the last series of five missions involve the Battle of Yavin, culminating in a very challenging run down the Death Star's equatorial trench in a slightly modified recreation of the final battle of A New Hope. Uh, I didn't think I'd end up going into as much detail as I have here, but uh, frankly, I don't really think there's any spoilers. I haven't really spoiled the plot for you. Uh, The story is very cursory, and each group of missions don't really affect the other groups of missions. Uh, It's interesting to see how they modify the events from the movies to not include any of the original characters, instead replacing them with somewhat generic rebel officers that, uh, that you encounter through the game, such as Commander Farrell and other people like that. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. So, I haven't said it very much thus far, but Rebel Assault was one of those games that really pushed the technology envelope. It was the first LucasArts game that shipped on CD-ROM only and made use of actual footage from the Star Wars films. So with that in mind, here's what you needed to play it back in 1993. We needed a 386 33 MHz, MS-DOS 5.0, 4 megs of RAM, a joystick or mouse, and a 2x CD-ROM drive. Soundwise, a Sound Blaster or compatible card was required uh, because this game was obviously all digital sound. No ad-libs, no MIDI, no, no, nothing like that. Graphically, we were a 320 by 200 VGA at 256 colors. So, while all this sounds somewhat interesting, the big technological innovation in Rebel Assault lies in its engine named INSANE, which is all spelled in capitals because it's LucasArts, so hey, it's an acronym. Now, as we can see, LucasArts continued its interesting uh, engine naming system. We started off with SCUM, or the script creation utility for Maniac Mansion, and we've now graduated to INSANE, which is the interactive streaming animation engine. Uh, the engine was developed by Vince Lee, who we will find more uh, find out more about uh, very, very soon. Uh, the main feature of Insane was the ability to stream digital video from the low-performance CD-ROMs of the time. I've mentioned this in previous shows focusing on FMV, but uh, you know the main issue with a video wasn't necessarily storing it. It was getting it off of the CD-ROMs of the time that had very, very slow transfer rates. Uh, also, the videos needed to be in a streamable format since most computers in the early 90s only had eh, 4, 8, maybe 12 or 16 megs of RAM at the outside, but really we're talking 4 to 8. Uh, you know, There's no way you could load a 50, 100, or 200 meg video into 8 megs of RAM. So how was this done? Well, with a video compression codec called Smush. Smush was a custom codec which heavily compressed video content. Now this allowed full screen video to be played at, you know, kind of at at full screen resolution 
on what was considered high-res displays at the time, that is 320 by 200 and eventually 640 by 480. And a lot of other games, uh, you know, you'd have a 320 by 200 game display, but, you know, your video display would be very, very, very small, I think, unless I'm crazy, uh, Seventh Guest was kind of like that. The, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm try, if I remember right, the videos kind of showed up as, as smaller screens within a larger screen, whereas in this game, the video took up the entire uh, area of the screen. Now, the other feature of Insane, which I feel insane saying over and over again, so the other feature of Insane was uh, possibly even more innovative, and that was the ability for it to dynamically load video content in split seconds based on player interaction. So say we jump back to that first training mission. At one point, as I said in the description, you can choose to fly left and follow your flight leader or go right and take the easy path. Now, when you do this in game, it doesn't really seem like a thing. The level continues on your chosen path with almost no noticeable load time at all. What we don't realize is that under the hood, this this was pretty crazy. You know, so basically you're playing and there's a very, very small time frame, kind of a very, it's either one keyframe or a couple of frame time span where based on the positioning of your ship, either the left path video has to be loaded like that, like in a second, or the right path video has to be loaded, boom, in a second. So that that was very, very, very innovative at the time. So it's actually really interesting to me. You know, there's tons and tons of information and history out there about the scum engine, but very little about insane. Uh, that may be a function of, uh, of their specific creators, as we'll soon see. Uh, Music-wise, as far as I understand it and as far as I experienced it, uh, the game used original John Williams' Star Wars score, uh, downsampled and optimized for the relatively low bitrate sound cards of the day. Hey, it's a Star Wars game with digital Star Wars music. What more could you ask for? You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. So, Rebel Assault is very much attributable to one man, Vince Lee. So, Vince Lee's first exposure to video games was on a Cub Scout field trip. Uh, The troop that he was in visited the Lawrence Hall of Science, which is an interactive museum in Berkeley, California. On that trip, he had the opportunity to play very old games like Computer Space, also known as Star Trek, and Lunar Lander. These were... Of course, very, very old text-based games. I mean, the versions he played at the museum didn't even work via a screen to output things. They printed out to a, to a teletype machine. Uh, despite the rudimentary nature of these games, they sparked Vince's interest. A few years later, his father purchased and assembled a Heathkit H89 computer. With this machine, Vince began teaching himself basic and then graduated on to assembly language. His next step, of course, was uh, was to make games. He was 15 when uh, he commercially sold his first game. So after graduating from high school, he attended uh, UC Berkeley, where he got his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering, and then went on to do a year and a half master's degree in robotics and control systems. All throughout his studies, he programmed games, uh, including some paid work here and there for uh, for some Amiga developers. Although he had some money coming in, game programming was very much his hobby. At the time, school came first, that was the priority, blah, blah, blah. 
Upon earning his master's degree in the spring of 1991, it was time to hit the job market. Since his degree was in robotics and control systems, he went for the big guys, IBM, Exxon, Boeing, other things like that. However, in 1991, the first Gulf War was was in full swing. Because of this, large companies tended to be holding off on hiring. So as a result, job offers for Vince were not exactly uh, rolling in. So as sort of a joke on a lark, if you will, Vince handed his resume over to a friend who was working at, uh, at THX, which, as, as some of us know, is another Lucasfilm company. And uh, his friend forwarded this, the resume over to LucasArts. Uh, an offer came, and on a whim, since he didn't have any other, anything else lined up, uh, he accepted it. His first project as a, as a LucasArts employee was uh, the development of, or the continued development of the Amiga version of Monkey Island. The project was in a bit of trouble. It was about a month behind schedule. Uh, the previous programmer had quit, and there was an outstanding crash bug that nobody could figure out. As it turns out, though, Vince had seen this particular uh, operating system interaction before, and he was able to quickly fix it uh, without actually needing a very deep understanding of the code. It was kind of just something with the way that the game interacted with the OS, and that was causing a crash, so fixed it, and boom, we were good to go. Uh, He continued to work on various game projects, mostly focused on uh, converting other games to Amiga, in addition to some work on the uh, core uh, Scum Amiga interpreter. So about a year passed, and Vince found himself at the uh, Winter Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. So he was was hanging around with uh, with the LucasArts folks that were there, and uh, Kelly Flock who was uh, the director of game development at the time, uh, drunkenly <laughs> pulled, pulled Vince aside and told him that he should, he should really lead this new project known internally only as Star Wars 3D. It's like, dude, you should really, you should really take, c- take control of this, this Star Wars 3D thing we got going. So it turns out uh, that JVC, who was an occasional partner of LucasArts, had said that they wanted a game that consisted of Star Wars ships, flying over land that was really the extent of the idea for gameplay that's all they had jvc said we want a game where star wars ships fly over land jvc would fund the project if lucasarts made the game and gave jvc the rights to publish the game on all the upcoming cd-based consoles from sega nintendo though i don't think a nintendo cd-based console actually ever came out and uh and fujitsu in fact uh when vince heard about it the deal had actually already been done uh, LucasArts honestly just had to make the game. Uh, so Flock figured uh, they could develop it on the PC and then port it over to all the consoles that JVC wanted. Uh, the agreement with JVC said nothing about PC publishing, so LucasArts could publish on that platform on their own and give all the console stuff to JVC like they wanted. Funny thing was, Star Wars 3D, as it was called, wasn't supposed to be any sort of grandiose experience. It was honestly just supposed to be the minimum amount of effort that was required to fulfill this contract with JVC. According to Lee, the original marketing forecast, which apparently he still has uh, for for Rebel Assault or for Star Wars 3D or whatever, uh, was a total lifetime sales of a mere 15,000 units. All that aside, business stuff, blah, blah, blah. uh, Lee's a programmer. And he was very, very interested in the project. 
Uh, since he didn't have much in the way of direction from JVC, aside from Star Wars ships flying over land, he decided to take the one technical requirement that the game be on a CD-ROM and run with it. Uh, as we discussed in the tech focus, much of the game's cutscenes and uh, in-game graphics were called directly from digitized film from the Star Wars movies. Uh, for the mission where you attack the Star Destroyer Devastator, which I think is the third mission, something like that, fourth mission, uh, a physical Star Destroyer model was digitized in much the same way uh, as they did in the original movies. A camera was moved around the model at close range, mimicking the movement of your ship. Uh, I'm not sure if it was like kind of a model kit Star Destroyer model or if it was one of the actual uh, Star Destroyer models they used in the movies. But uh, still pretty cool. And also, if you pay close attention, you'll notice that uh, the in-cockpit views of the X-Wing and the A-Wing look very familiar. Well, if you noticed that, then you are observant because uh, the cockpit art for the X-Wing and the A-Wing were actually borrowed from X-Wing, which, uh, which came out a bit earlier in, uh, in 1993. So those resources were there internal to LucasArts since the games were kind of being developed at the same time and uh, they grabbed those cockpit, uh, cockpit stills and used them. So while all this art production and fancy stuff was going on, Vince was working on the Insane system and his Smush video compression codex. Now, one issue he ran into uh, with the art and animation was uh, very specifically on the Hoth base levels. So they had actually uh, contracted this out to kind of a third-party animation house, you know, just for resource allocation and timeframes and all that. But what they ended up getting back was kind of a, of, of let's, shall we say, dubious quality. And, uh, and it was basically virtually unusable. The keyframes weren't lined up where they were supposed to be and, and all this other stuff. Just, just It was awful. It was horrible. It didn't look good. It didn't work well. They could basically not use it. But they had what they had. So, they, so Vince and, and a couple of the other people on the team uh, spent hours hand-cutting and resyncing all the keyframes and uh, you know, doing all kinds of other tweaks. And uh, at the end of it, they came out with a playable level. However, they had to cut quite a bit of gameplay to get it into uh, get it into any form of working state. So, despite all these issues and roadblocks and technical challenges and and all that, Rebel Assault released in November of 1993 two very good reviews. Uh, though the gameplay was somewhat straightforward, reviewers hailed the technological achievements of the game in relation to multimedia. Uh, for its time, it was an incredibly beautiful game that made you feel like you were inside a Star Wars movie. You know, the level of video production quality, amount of voice acting and graphical detail was just unbelievable for the time. So obviously with this success, uh, Vince Lee would get a chance to resolve the issues he encountered in the first game with Rebel Assault 2, The Hidden Empire. So unlike the first game, which loosely followed the events of the movies and, and therefore couldn't really fall into Star Wars canon as we know it today, even though today it's kind of messed up again, uh... The second game has a completely original plot. Now, the traditional opening crawl, which the first game lacked, reads as follows. By destroying the Death Star, rebel forces prove themselves a serious threat to the Galactic Empire. Darth Vader, enraged by his defeat, became obsessed with the Alliance's elimination. Toward this end, his forces have scoured the galaxy for a new weapon, a weapon Vader hopes can catch the Alliance off guard and give the Empire undisputed rule of the galaxy. Dot, dot, dot. 
We then watch the game's credits roll while uh, we follow an MSE-6 mouse droid. If you remember those, they're kind of the little box droids with wheels that rode around on the Death Star. So we follow one of those around uh, the white halls of what I can only assume is an Imperial Star Destroyer. And eventually, the droid comes to a halt and we witness two Imperial officers having a discussion. You wanted to speak with me, Admiral. Ah, yes. Tell your men I want no slip-ups this time. The demonstration shall proceed flawlessly. Am I understood? Yes, of course, sir. They'll be ready. Good. Carry on. The rebel fighters are in range, my lord. Sigma Squadron stands ready, awaiting your command. Very well, Admiral. Engage the Rebels. Nothing on my scanners, Commander. Copy that. Gender patrol? Doesn't seem to be anything out here. I think this sector's secure. Let's take one more path and get back to base. I hear you. And let's make it quick. I don't want to stay out here a second longer than necessary. What's the matter, Till? Don't tell me a hotshot pilot like you is afraid of the Dryden Triangle. No. Well, I'm, I'm not saying I believe in ghost ships or anything, but... You've got to admit there's been a lot of unexplained happenings in these parts for the last 40 years since the Battle of Dryden. I mean, how can so many... Rebel Control, emergency. We are under attack. Can you read it? Is anybody out there? As you can see, Lord Vader, the units perform admirably. In fact, I think the whole project has proved quite impressive. Why, in a few years... What I see, Admiral Song, is just another one of your endless tests. I will not be impressed until I have, under my command, the full power to crush the Rebel Alliance. So, it looks like the test was, uh, was for a new kind of Imperial weapon, one that can strike without being detected. Uh, we then begin the game where we rejoin Rookie One flying a B-Wing under the command of a more senior pilot named Kirby. Can't make it out, Commander. Hailing vessel, repeat your message. We read you, but you're breaking up. Repeat, this cargo vessel Corellia Star. We are under attack from Imperial fighters. Clear information is right to the Alliance. The Empire has taken my... ...new weapon. Darth Vader continues to destroy the Alliance. Repeat your message, Corellia. Rebel Control, we have it time. They're boarding us. Okay, kid. Stay sharp. Watch your scanners for Imperial vessels. Too late, they've already seen us. 
I'm picking up a Womp Rat's nest of TIE Fighters at 042 Mark 3. They're headed our way. Copy that. Switch to attack mode. We're 229 Mark 4. So we fight the ties and survive, only to have Kirby shot down at the end by an unknown assailant. Possibly the same secret weapon from the intro? Who knows? Uh, so Rookie One survives but and lands on the planet Drayton to seek out the missing freighter that we were hearing about in uh, in the kind of the, not really the briefing, but the mission start cutscene. Uh, this launches us into 15 more missions where we uncover the Empire's new secret weapon. Uh, we encounter characters such as Admiral Akbar and Darth Vader, whose voices are much, much better than uh, in the first game. Uh, we also get to pilot a wider variety of vehicles in uh, in the sequel, including, as we just saw, a B-Wing. We also get to fly a Y-Wing and a YT-1300 light freighter, which is the same model as the Millennium Falcon. Uh, we also, <laughs> as you may see in my uh, YouTube playthrough, get to pilot a speeder bike in uh, in what is one of those uh, slightly frustrating levels. Uh, there's also many, many more levels involving ground combat, and uh, this game in those uh, you know kind of uh, human ground combat levels also introduce uh, a cover element, allowing your character not only to dodge shots but to get behind cover and completely avoid damage. While there were certainly a bunch of small changes, such as cleaner graphics, more responsive controls, and more gameplay types, more ships, more ground combat, and a more cohesive story, uh, the biggest difference in Rebel Assault 2 is the use of full motion video and real actors in place of the uh, digital animations of the first game. Rookie One is played by Jameson Jones, who is a working actor who's played roles in shows like General Hospital, 24, and Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles. Uh, the filming was done at a soundstage in Marin County and used costumes pulled from the Lucasfilm archives. So yes, these props and costumes seen in Rebel Assault 2 were all also screen used in the original trilogy. Uh, that may be why, if you again are paying attention, a lot of the costumes frankly don't fit the actors very well. Uh, in fact, Rebel Assault 2 was the first time Star Wars film footage was shot since Return of the Jedi. Now, Vince Lee was very conscious of this fact. Uh, he was also conscious of the fact that this was a, an FMV game and he was not a filmmaker. Uh, in an interview, Lee says that uh, he tried very hard not to fall into the trap many FMV game designers fell into trying to make these huge epic cutscenes that end up coming across hokey and melodramatic because, frankly, these guys are programmers and game designers and not film directors. Uh, he just, his goal, really, was uh, was just to have some short clips to tie the missions together. Uh, is the acting still B-movie quality? Yeah, but it's bearable. Uh, another small but cool technical feature that was added to the insane engine for Rebel Assault 2 was the ability to rotate the uh, the view outside by up to 15 degrees in each direction. So this means that when you bank your ship, the world around you would also kind of bank, which which kind of was one of those things that was helpful for immersion. Finally, one hallmark of LucasArts uh, was that they were sort of the black sheep company of, of kind of the, the Lucasfilm conglomerate, Lucasfilm family. Uh, as a result, they never really had hard deadlines or even a strong need to be successful from a sales perspective. Uh, this generally allowed them to do some fun things with their games. 
so Rebel Assault 2 has quite a few Easter eggs in it, uh, including joke videos, uh, one of which I posted over on the Facebook group with, uh, with a bunch of, uh, with basically two Imperial officers standing in the foreground and a bunch of stormtroopers, uh, line dance, conga line dancing or not conga line. Uh, you know, that thing with the ladies who are dancing with the kicking that line, they're dancing in the background. Uh, and there's, it's kind of the, this is the best thing. And you could also find this on YouTube if you don't want to try and invoke it through the game, but there's a mystery science theater 3000 mode. So in MST 3k mode, we see silhouettes of Vader, R2 and Luke watching the game videos kind of as in the same style as mystery science theater. And, uh, also the voice track is replaced by hilarious, uh, di- text dialogue including kind of this this running gag about everyone wanting to buy boots because there's a boot sale going on. Uh, so just search for Rebel Assault 2 MST3K on YouTube and watch it. Uh, I haven't gotten all the way through yet, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's funny. It's totally worth it. So, of course, Rebel Assault 2 was also successful, though, though Lee holds up the first game as a bigger technical achievement, he admits the second game is superior to the first in almost basically every way imaginable. So what does the future hold for Rebel Assault? Well, as of right now, not a thing. Uh, But it would be very cool if Lucasfilm under Disney was able to re-release it. I have absolutely no proof that this will happen, but a guy can dream, right? Uh, So I guess that leads us into how we can get it. Well, digitally, again, you can't legally buy Rebel Assault or Rebel Assault 2 anywhere, as far as I could see. There's always eBay, and of course, there's our friend Google. Uh, if you can get your hands on it, runs just fine under DOSBox, no major issues. Uh, there's no configuring of MIDI stuff, because there isn't any. So yeah, it, it, it all works quite well. Ah, the Upper Memory Podcast, one of the best podcasts around about geeky old-style gaming on computers. Well, we talk about old stuff as well. We talk about old classic television programs and films from around the world. So if that's your cup of tea or coffee, then why don't you listen to us? We're called Waffle On Podcast, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our main site, which is waffleon.podbean.com. We would be honoured if you'd join us. Okay, before my big verdict, we got a quick email from Martin. He writes, Joe, exclamation point. I am so glad you've finally gotten around to one of my favorite games of all time. Rebel Assault is one of the last games introduced to me in my summer of Star Wars and holds a special place in my heart. Uh, It's been ages since I played Rebel Assault, mainly because of my ineptitude with DOSBox that won't allow me to relieve my childhood. It was, however, a blast to watch you attempt to play Rebel Assault on your stream and relive some of my favorite moments and triumphs. When I was a kid, I would always be able to hit that Star Destroyer bridge spot on no problem. Uh, But as I got older, I began to degrade in my abilities to bullseye the game as well as I had before, and I eventually moved on to Rebel Assault 2. I can remember clearly that my dad brought home Rebel Assault 2 instead of Dark Forces 2 because we didn't have an accelerated 3D card but I didn't mind too much. Rebel Assault 2 blew me away as a kid. I wish FMVs were popular again, as I feel Dark Forces 2 had uh, really good acting compared to most FMV sequences in other games. The last time I was impressed with a game with a FMV, with a game with FMVs was Active War Direct Action. It had a really great Command and Conquer vibe. Dark Forces 2 
uh, to me felt more inventive with its level design and had more variety, even though they were mostly reskins of the same level. And I think he actually means Rebel Assault 2 here. He keeps saying Dark Forces 2, but uh, so my fondest memory of Dark Forces 2, I think he means Rebel Assault 2, is uh, sitting with my cousin on the PS1 version, comparing all the differences between the two versions of the game. We would grade each level depending on how different it was. We gave automatic Fs to any level that you could use uh, a 3D model as an outside view because we were dumb kids. And he says, please delete this part if I am wrong. And I believe he is not wrong. So uh, he says, I'm sure you brought this up. But a cool fact that tickles my nostalgia bone is that Rebel Assault 2 used the actual props and costumes from the original movie and holds the dubious honor of being the last time they were used to film in front of camera for the purposes of a Star Wars story. And yet another bit of trivia, Rebel Assault 2 was also the last time any physical stormtrooper or trooper variant was filmed, starting with the enhanced editions of the original trilogy. Uh, All troopers were inserted digitally with CGI. Neat, huh? Thanks for showing those punk Rebel Assault detractors for what uh, what for by featuring this game. You made this old fanboy happy. P.S. How could you have possibly mixed up Rogue Squadron as being part of the Rebel Assault franchise? You missed out, pal. Between Rogue Squadron and Shadows of the Empire, I think you are running out of Star Wars games in the pre-XP era. P.P.S. I also wanted to mention that Rebel Assault 2 featured the voice acting talents of many mainstay Star Wars game voices. I grew up with almost all the same VA uh, or VO playing a role in each Star Wars game growing up and I've grown to miss them. Well, thank you, Martin. And uh, yeah, you know, I don't know why I think for some reason when I was a kid, I always thought that Rebel, that Rogue Squadron was Rebel Assault 3. That's not the case, which is great because that opens up another show for me to do. And, uh, you know, there, there's there's definitely other Star Wars games that, uh, that I can cover between there's rogue squadron shadows of the empire like you said there's also uh star wars galactic battlegrounds star wars empire or war uh what was that there was one more so oh yeah star wars rebellion which i played a lot of even though it's not a very good game uh still lots of star wars to go through i'll see uh where my cutoff is i think that last rts game might be a little bit too new uh obviously battlefront is way too new but uh lots of star wars to discuss and uh as i said i think i want to do some uh some streaming stuff with uh, with X-Wing and TIE Fighter and all that. So I love Star Wars. I love DOS games. Let's keep it rolling. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So does Rebel Assault hold up today? Well, and I'm sure Martin is going to get mad at me for this one. Uh, the first game honestly doesn't, in my opinion, And saying this, frankly, makes me sad. Like Martin, I have very strong memories of this game. I loved it. I thought it was a marvel. It was beautiful. And frankly, from that perspective, it is worth playing. However, it it just isn't that fun. The controls are super twitchy. They're under-responsive at first and then super sensitive the next. On top of that, we have a concept of lives here. And once you're down to zero, you have to resume with a password, which you only get every few levels. In my YouTube playthrough, I got stuck at the asteroid field, which is level six. I have a lot of patience. But by the time I gave up, my nerves were shot. I played with a joystick, like I did back in the 90s. And then I heard from somebody, possibly Martin, possibly someone else on Facebook or on Twitter, that playing with the mouse was easier. So I went back and I tried that to no avail. Rebel Assault is hard even on easy mode. And it's not fun hard like another world. It's just plain frustrating, anxiety-inducing, and hard. (laughs) Rebel Assault 2, 
on the other hand, is a recommended my book. Uh, the FMV is very cool, even if the acting's a little bit thin. Uh, the gameplay is much improved with the addition of more difficulty levels and uh, overall the game, while still hard and frustrating at times, is much, much more playable. So the first game, worth a play for historical reasons, if not for fun reasons. Uh, second game, worth your time. Give it a go. Okay, so that's that for another show. Thanks to everyone who contributed, as always. Next time, I'm going to hit a fun dynamics adventure that I remember from my youth called The Adventures of Willie Beamish. Uh, if you have memories of that game or of anything else, drop me a line at podcast.umbcast.com. I love hearing you guys, either written or preferably, if you can, via voicemail. Just to use your, uh, your smartphone's voice memo function, basically any kind of audio file. Don't worry, I can figure out how to play it. Uh, if not, there's a, a little widget on umbcast.com where you can record a voice memo. Uh, it's been used a couple times, but anything. I love hearing your voice. Barring that, I love reading your emails. Thanks, as always, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. You need anything, any kind of audio production, film production, photo work, website work. He, he does it all. He's a renaissance man. I've said it before. Check out the show notes for this show and previous shows at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. That's kind of our main uh, little community site where uh, we got a nice little group going, all kinds of discussion, all kinds of joking around and messing around and uh, funny videos and news and all that. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Uh, you can find the show on YouTube over at our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash umbcast, where I've started or I've continued. I got to change my uh, my show notes template here, where I've continued putting up uh, some, uh, some of my research videos and uh, having fun there. And uh, as always, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, leave me some reviews over there. I truly appreciate all those. The more reviews we've got that are hopefully five stars, uh, you know, the more exposure I get. So that's that. And I will see you next time for Willie Beamish here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.